The Fanboy, episode 117. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 117 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? So, check it out. There is a subject that we have been monitoring here these last few weeks together here on the Fanboy Podcast, and that situation has finally come to a head. That's right. The decision over whether or not Wonder Woman 1984 would be coming to theaters at all, going straight to streaming, or doing some sort of hybrid, well, that's been resolved. We now know what is going to happen, and it has potentially huge ramifications on the movie theater industry as we know it, as well as the film distribution industry as we know it. And I've gotten a couple of requests already from you guys today, from multiple viewers and listeners, to tackle this. So let's dive straight on in, shall we? It became official. Wonder Woman 1984 is going to be releasing simultaneously in theaters here in the United States, and on streaming at HBO Max on Christmas Day, December 25th. And if you happen to be outside of the U.S. market, you are going to be treated to the film in theaters to uh, about nine days prior to that on December 16th. Now, if you're in a foreign market and you don't want to go to a theater and you don't receive HBO Max, well, that's going to be an interesting conundrum for you. But hopefully, uh, HBO can get their situation sorted and get HBO Max available in more households around the world. But for right now, here in the States, we can look forward to Wonder Woman 1984 arriving on December 25th, 2020, right smack dab on Christmas Day, simultaneously in theaters and on HBO Max, giving us the ultimate sort of option as to how we want to take this movie in. If we live in a part of the country where we feel like, you know what, the pandemic is sort of under control here and the theaters have it all you know, figured out, then you may want to brave it and go with a group of people and check out Wonder Woman 1984 in a movie theater. For myself and my family and for most of us here in New York City, we're going to be watching it on HBO Max. Uh, I mean, it's just a it's just a hunch. But as of yesterday, New York City has closed down its public schools again. So that means I've got my house filled with people again because my wife, the school teacher, and my two kids who go to public school are now all doing virtual classrooms from here on out for the indefinite future. So in terms of trying to get back to normalcy, we are quite a bit away from that. We're, we're pretty far from normalcy. And you know, New York City happens to be one of the major entertainment hubs in the world, but definitely here in the United States. And if the New York market is not going to be able to see Wonder Woman 1984, that means that their box office in theaters was not going to be that great if it was only going to be in theaters. So one of the big questions, though, is 
what are the benefits? What are the benefits of HBO Max making Wonder Woman 1984 part of its just free offerings? It's not going to be the kind of thing like on Amazon Prime, where when a theatrical release comes to Amazon Prime, you spend $20 and then you rent it and you have 48 hours with that rental. It's not going to be like that. All you have to be is an HBO Max subscriber and you'll get Wonder Woman 1984. It's pretty crazy. And Tavo Borrego asked me, like, basically, what's in it for HBO Max to be releasing this film essentially free of charge without any sort of upsale? And here's what it is. Here's my take on it. And I'm actually going to use a uh, wrestling analogy, a wrestling comparison. Uh, For those of you who aren't wrestling fans, just bear with me because I think you're going to see the parallels. But way back in the early 90s, when WCW went out and got the costly acquisition of Hulk Hogan, who was now a few years past his prime, they paid him a fat salary and they brought him to WCW. And right away, people started to question whether or not that was a good idea because the ratings didn't necessarily reflect a huge jump. He didn't seemingly create a big boost to their business. But as Eric Bischoff, the person who was running WCW at the time, has gone on to point out over on the 83 Weeks podcast, which, by the way, if you're a wrestling fan and you're a lot and you're not listening to 83 Weeks, you are missing out. But Eric Bischoff made a very, very interesting observation about all that, because what Hogan brought to WCW wasn't just a a shot in the arm. And now we're going to have all these great ratings victories and the money's just going to be rolling in. No, he had a lot of ancillary benefits, meaning things that benefited the brand as a whole that made it easier to sell advertisers, made it easier to appeal to more mainstream audiences. It boosted the overall recognition of WCW to the point where the company was growing, just not in ways that you could tell with your own eyes. If you're just a fan watching on TV, WCW doesn't seem to be that much different with or without Hulk Hogan. But if you're running the company... You're noticing that you're feeling a lot more phone calls for press interviews. You're finding it a lot easier to get big uh, advertisers and sponsors for your shows. You're finding that your merchandising is starting to really jump off because people know the Hulk Hogan brand. And that's already happening for Roku. (laughs) For Roku. Well, I got spoiler alert. (laughs) That's already happening for HBO Max. See, I just kind of talk instead of burying the lead. I gave you the lead first. But ever since HBO Max announced this, they've been at the center of the conversation for the last 24 hours. And not only now has the dispute with with uh, the Amazon Fire Stick finally been resolved, but now Roku devices are nearing a deal to start being able to stream HBO Max. And that sort of stuff happens when your streaming service becomes the premier location for, let's face it, the only real event film of 2020. You know, because of the way that this year shaped up, the way things went turned out because of the pandemic and all of the craziness that has been 2020, 
Wonder Woman 1984 is essentially going to be the movie of 2020, and it's going to arrive on Christmas Day, and it's going to probably do a ton of business, not necessarily in movie theaters, but you got to remember, the first Wonder Woman movie, when it came out in June of 2017, it was something of a cultural phenomenon. I remember, I'll never forget, I mean, if you listen to this podcast or if you go back into the archives and listen to the show as I was doing it during the weeks when Wonder Woman was a fresh thing, it was an amazing thing to track. The expectations were so low. It was interesting. After what had happened where people felt like, you know, where box office analysts had felt like Man of Steel was a hit, but not quite the level that it should have been. After Batman versus Superman made some decent money, but didn't turn much of a profit and was also seen as a disappointment. And then there was Suicide Squad, which actually did rather well in the box office and in the profit department. But for some reason, after Suicide Squad, the next DC movie to come out was Wonder Woman, and the expectations were crazy low. I remember they were looking at like $65 million. That was like the early projection for what Wonder Woman would do. And then it opened to over $100 million. Talk about overperforming. Talk about exceeding and blowing past expectations. Wonder Woman was a huge triumph for DC at a time when they really needed it too. Because remember, 2016 was not an easy year for the DC brand. It wasn't an easy year for the DC fandom. It was a fairly bruising time and Wonder Woman arrived and kind of almost single-handedly turned the tide on people's perceptions of DC on film and what these DC DCEU movies are capable of. Because again, Wonder Woman, through the positive word of mouth, through the great reviews, through the fact that it was just, it, it was a well-made, well-received movie, it became a bit of a cultural phenomenon. And a lot of people were rallying behind what this meant for women. You know, it came out at a time where the modern sort of feminist movement as we know it was really kind of, you know, starting to find its stride three years ago. And it was just, it was a moment. I remember, I remember, I saw it a couple of times in theaters and both times the theater was packed and there was all kinds of fans there. It wasn't just people my age. You had all, you had women there with their mothers and their daughters. It was quite an amazing spectacle to see how this was bringing people out of the house because they had to come see the first Wonder Woman movie. You know, it was a big thing. And that movie, thankfully, it left a great impression in people's mouths. It had a strong cinema score. It had good word of mouth. So the movie had legs and it ended up making like a nice amount of money. And it didn't even cost anywhere near as much as some of its predecessors. So Wonder Woman was a phenomenon in a number of ways. So this sequel, realistically... We can expect that there's going to be a ton of interest in this movie. And if it's coming out in you know on Christmas Day, which is a holiday, and we know Christmas Day tends to be a movie outing. A lot of families go to the movies. That's why a lot of movie studios fight for that Christmas Day release slot. The Christmas Day slot has been pretty hot. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it's been pretty hot for years now. I mean, I, I don't know if this is my totally unresearched opinion, 
But I noticed that around the time that Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol came out around Christmas and did amazingly well and almost single-handedly breathed all kinds of new life back into the Mission Impossible franchise. Because remember, after Mission Impossible 3, the franchise kind of went on limbo and they weren't sure if they were going to recast Tom Cruise. And there was all kinds of interesting sort of tumult about what was going to happen with Mission Impossible. And then Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, the fourth film in the series, comes out on Christmas Day. And all of a sudden, studios learned, oh, there's a huge audience out there for like action adventure spectacle on Christmas Day. And in the years since, that's when Star Wars would come out. That's when Aquaman did great numbers. That's when, um, what was that, Jumanji, the, the Jumanji sequel that Dwayne Johnson did, made insane money. You know, that Christmas release window, people have sort of been trained now the last few years to want to seek out and see the big Christmas movie. And in some markets where the pandemic is not raging, I expect the theaters are going to have a fair amount of people in them. But even in markets where there aren't theaters, there's going to be an appetite to see this movie. And if, and if families are all congregated on Christmas Day and somebody mentions, hey, we could put the new Wonder Woman that just came out today, we could put it on the TV. Let's watch that later. You know, it's going to be a lot of eyeballs on HBO Max. And for HBO Max, you cannot calculate the value of that. The advertising push and the buzz around this is going to play a very big part in it, of course. But as as, as long as Warner Media and Warner Max, there's all these different little subgroups within the you know, there's there's Warner Brothers, there's Warner Media, there's Warner Max, there's Warner, you know. But assuming that they advertise this right and really make this feel like here is your one chance all year to see the big spectacle blockbuster of the year, the one that everyone wants to watch, the most hotly anticipated sequel that is actually arriving in 2020. As long as they can capitalize on that and really push heavily on that idea, they're going to get a ton of new subscribers. They're going to get... I mean, they've already gotten Roku and Amazon to go, okay, whatever we have to do to get you on our platforms, we're going to do. So as long as they push it hard enough, they're going to get a huge boost in membership and the brand recognition of HBO Max is going to go up. Because now with all these stories that are out there, you know, the, the, the internet's been flooded with stories about this bold decision of Wonder Woman 1984 going to HBO Max. Well, guess what? There are people who probably didn't even know that HBO Max exists. I know it sounds hard to believe because you're listening to a fanboy podcast and you probably exist in a corner of pop culture that knows full well about every streamer ever. But HBO has a unique you know, conundrum in that they had the HBO network available through your cable box. But they also have HBO Go, if you, which is like basically a spinoff of your cable box subscription. And they have HBO Now, which was the standalone HBO streamer where you don't need to have the cable box. And then they added HBO Max. So there have been four different kinds of HBO that people could enjoy over the years. 
and HBO Max is not available on other apps. Like, you know, HBO Now you can still access, I believe. I remember I, up until a few months ago, I was able to use HBO Now through my Roku, but it had to be using the Roku subscription version of HBO Now. It all gets so kind of confusing. But HBO really created this weird scenario where there were all these branching versions of HBO. And there are people who still watch HBO on their smart TV. I mean, my mother-in-law was doing it. She 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 just had the regular HBO app on her TV. And I told her, no, we got to delete that. And we got to put HBO Max. It's the same login credentials at the same price. But you got a bunch more stuff. And it, you know, it's, a whole, it, it, it's a very cool service. She had no idea. So HBO Max, to answer your question, Tavo, and to anyone else wondering, like, why would they give away, quote unquote, for free Wonder Woman 1984? They're not giving anything away. There are ancillary benefits that, you know, lay people like you or I are never going to necessarily notice. But being the destination for the big event film of the holiday season, which after a year of people being locked up and quarantined and panicked and anxiety written and not having a chance to go have those wonderful communicable, communicable? communal experiences at a movie theater and just to get out of the house and have that escapist adventure, Warner Brothers is going to give everyone that through HBO Max. So... That's going to funnel a lot of attention towards the streamer, and it's going to make it seem like, wow, you know what? If they got Wonder Woman 84, which is arguably the biggest, most buzziest, you know, most important movie of 2020 at this point, you know, chances are they're going to get access to other interesting exclusives. So I sh I'd better get Wonder Woman. I'd, I'd better get HBO Max. And you'd better believe that the folks who run the actual website and the, 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 the user interface and everything, they're going to make sure that HBO Max looks like a million bucks and that, and that the layout is really appealing and that they really put their best foot forward when they get a huge influx of eyeballs on Christmas Day. And then don't even get me started on if the movie is really good. Because if the movie is good then you know what's going to happen. Everyone's locked at home using social media to communicate. If everyone who's everyone who's watching Wonder Woman 84 is posting about how amazing it is, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to get that feeling of FOMO. Like, well, I, you know, fear of missing out for the, uh, you know, listen, it took me, I, I didn't know what FOMO was until about a year ago. So, you know, if you don't know what it is, don't beat yourself up. But that fear of missing out is going to be a real thing. If everyone who's locked up at home on their Twitter feeds and on their Facebook feeds is seeing that all their friends are watching Wonder Woman 84, guess what? They're going to want to get the uh, either the free trial or they're going to want to subscribe. By the way, if I were HBO Max, I would do away with any kind of free trial subscription in the month of December. Just because that, I feel like that would be an unfortunate sort of loophole, right? If they release it on HBO Max... And then you get a bunch of people who sign up for like the free trial and then cancel it on December 26th. You know, in theory, how could they stop you from doing that? Right. So I feel like it might behoove them if anyone. Hey, Jason Kilar, if you're watching this, you may want to consider suspending your free trial period in December. But 
you know, when I when I talk about what this pandemic has done in terms of like social media buzz, like I remember, like where were you when Tiger King was the thing that everyone was talking about? As all these people who are trapped at home needed something to watch, something to take their mind off all the insanity happening out happening outside. Suddenly, I couldn't go anywhere without hearing about freaking Tiger King. You know, and there have been a few examples of that over the last few months, how when something grabs pop culture's attention, it grabs everyone's attention because everyone's glued to the same, you know, online platforms to try to pass the time as they're trapped at home in a pandemic. So I think that this is going to pay off hugely well for HBO Max. It's going to make it, it. First of all, it's going to raise awareness of the new service. It's going to make give people who were on the fence a reason to finally go, OK, I'm going to sign up because they have this. And when they see all the other really cool stuff and the originals that are on there and on top of that, if you think about it, it's going to attract a lot of people who like D.C., a lot of people who are, you know, who like Wonder Woman 84 and who are into superheroes. And HBO Max has a treasure trove of superhero content. So as long as they package it all right and kind of have Wonder Woman in the same tab showing all these cool originals, like now they're going to be the home for Titans. They're going to be the home for Doom Patrol. They're going to be the home for all kinds of DCEU stuff. They're going to probably want to put a trailer for Zack Snyder's Justice League in, at the beginning of Wonder Woman 84, like they're going to be able to basically put together quite a sales pitch to anyone who comes to HBO Max to watch Wonder Woman 84. They're, in theory, going to be teased with the full potential of what having this service would do for them. So that's what it's going to do. It's not necessarily about the dollars and cents. It's about raising the awareness of the brand. It's about giving those people who are on the fence an incentive to sign up. And when you add in that it's basically the only game in town when it comes to like a big event film, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like a perfect storm right now. And it's going to be like a pioneer at the vanguard of a whole new movement. I have a feeling a lot of studios are going to be looking at how Wonder Woman 84 performs and how many eyeballs it brings to HBO Max and how many new subscribers, as well as how many people actually brave it and go to theaters. Because, you know, let's face it. Well, before I get to that, you know, it's going to be the only game in town because aside from Disney's soul, which you know may ha attract some somewhat of an audience on Christmas Day. Wonder Woman eighty four is really going to be like the big thing on everyone's mind. That maybe 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 I'm biased because of how much I love superheroes and Wonder Woman in particular, and I'm I'm pulling for this movie. But I really don't see how Soul is going to steal the shine off of Wonder Woman 84 and or how it's going to take away from the buzz and excitement of the fact that this movie that we've been hearing about for a while, I, mean, I, I was looking at some stuff today that the first promo image for Wonder Woman 84 came out in 2018. Like people have been hearing about this movie for two years 
And most people loved the first Wonder Woman. So when you think about all that anticipation, the people who walked out of the first movie looking forward to a sequel and then have now been fed two years worth of promotional materials to get you excited for that movie, to then now have it drop on your lap like a gift on Christmas Day. Listen, there, there is a lot of reason to think that this is going to be a very successful launch for Wonder Woman 84, even if the box office is not going to be what we expected. You know, listen, under normal circumstances, if there was no pandemic and Wonder Woman 84 was coming to theaters, I'm, I, I mean, it would easily have cleared a billion dollars. And I'm sure that's a bitter pill to swallow. But there are other things. You know, the, the, the future is streaming. And the way Warner Media looks at HBO Max and the way Jim Lee looks at HBO Max, from what I've heard, streaming is the future and HBO Max is the future of DC. So we better start accepting what's to come. And speaking of, you know, getting ready for thing for what's to come, even the head of AMC theaters is on board with what's going on. You would think that the theater chains are in a panic. But I'm going to read you a quote right now, and you let me know what you think of this, because I find it sort of curious. So the head of AMC on, on what happened with WW84 said, For many months, AMC has been in active and deep dialogue with Warner Brothers to figure out how best this cinematic blockbuster could be seen at AMC theaters in these unprecedented times. Given that atypical circumstances call for atypical economic relationships between studios and theaters and atypical windows and releasing strategies... AMC is fully on board for Warner Brothers' announcement today. AMC continues to believe that exclusive theatrical releases benefit consumers, filmmakers, studios, and exhibitors. Even so, we also have clearly demonstrated this year that we are flexible and remain open to evolving long-standing business models provided that we do so in ways that improve the industry ecosystem for all players. So the, the, there's two lines in this statement that I find very interesting. So the first one is given that atypical circumstances call for atypical economic relationships between studios and theaters. So that, that that's interesting referring to an atypical economic relationship between the studio and the theater. Hmm. Then you hear that, and then you think about the line, provided that we do so in ways that improve the industry ecosystem for all players. Now, listen, I have no idea what that really means, but the implication is that AMC is not getting cut out of the deal. Because yes, not only do they get to release the movie in their theaters and they've been doing, you know, they've invested a lot of time and a lot of money into making their AMC theater locations a safe place to go during the pandemic. But I wonder if this means that part of the deal, part of the negotiation, this atypical relationship is that AMC and perhaps 
you know, all the, the major theater chains are going to make a little money on the back end of whatever Wonder Woman 84 ends up generating. I'm not sure. Listen, I, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not speaking with any degree of certainty, but when they talk about atypical relationships, when they talk about doing so in ways that improve the ecosystem for all players, it sounds to me like AMC is going to be getting something out of this. I don't know what that thing is. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't sound like Warner Brothers is just they made this decision without a, you know, without checking in and they're going to reap all the rewards. It sounds like there's been some sorts of conversations that have taken place that make AMC and possibly other chains a lot more comfortable with this. I don't know, you know, again, I don't know what those arrangements could be, but it does stand to it is very interesting to me that the head of AMC is talking about these sort of um, atypical arrangements that the studios and the theaters are making and that they're making arrangements that help everybody. So it'll be interesting to find out in the weeks and months to come what exactly those arrangements are. But there you have it, folks. So Wonder Woman 84 is officially coming to HBO Max we now live in a world where major studios release their top-tier AAA titles on a streamer for no additional charge. That's where we are now. That's what's up. Isn't this crazy? We are watching the paradigm shift right before our very eyes. Now, I'm going to tackle a couple of viewer questions before I get into what it was like watching Batman versus Superman Ultimate Edition with my family last Friday. I know a bunch of you are actually interested in how that went because, you know, uh, the, my Man of Steel thing was, uh, you know, it, it was it was quite an experience. And a lot of you really seem to appreciate the fact that my heart and my mind finally sort of opened to that interpretation of Superman, like fully opened to that interpretation of Superman. And I'm excited to talk about how BVS went. But before I get to that, I got two quick viewer questions. I already tackled what uh, Tavo and what Christo wanted me to discuss, which was about what Wonder Woman 84 means to the whole release model and how HBO Max will benefit, if at all, from having it on there at no additional charge. So I got to their questions. But now... The next one I'm going to be tackling comes from Stephen Marshall. And before I read his question, if you have not yet checked out my appearance on the Multiverse Musings vidcast, I was on there with Stephen Marshall and with Adam Basciano, old friend and old ally of Revenge of the Fans. And we just had a long, like an hour and a half long discussion about Superman, Superman Returns, and, you know, where we think Superman might be going next. And if you're one of the people who likes hearing me gush about Superman, uh, it was a hell of a time. So you should definitely look it up. The Multiverse Musings vidcast, they recently had a Superman Returns-centric episode, and I was their guest, and it was really a great time. But Stephen has asked me... <clears throat> Have you ever read, by the way, I'm tempted to read it in an accent. 
but I'm not because I've heard his, he's got an amazing accent. But anyway, okay. Uh, have you ever read the Justice League Mortal script? And if we had gotten Justice League Mortal, what do you think the superhero landscape would have looked like? So I'll answer the first part first, Stephen. Uh, no. I have not read the script. For some reason, that's just never appealed to me in general. Like the, I know that in this age of, uh, of uh, being a cinephile, it's pretty easy to get access to scripts online. And there's lots of people who read scripts and break them down. And they do comparisons of from script to screen and all that sort of stuff. For some reason, I, it's just, it's never called to me to track down a script. I have my reasons, but it's just never really been my thing. Um, but I can answer the second part. So if we had gotten Justice League Mortal, directed by George Miller, um, what would the superhero landscape have looked like after that point? Well, it's interesting. I think it would have completely changed the course we were on. It would have opened us up to this idea of the, the multiverse, maybe indirectly, but it would have introduced us to the multiverse much sooner. And it might have even avoided some of the headaches that occurred several years later. Because let's remember, Justice League Mortal was in production in like 08, 09. And the idea was that Justice League Mortal would arrive in theaters in the middle of Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. And yet it wasn't going to have Christian Bale's Batman. It was going to have Army Hammer as Batman. It was going to be set in its own sort of alternate timeline. It was not related. And it was going to be a very sort of unique thing. I mean, especially at that time. You know, right now in the last, I don't know, 10, 11 years, audiences have gotten so used so used to reboots and, 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 and remaking reboots uh, and soft reboots and hard reboots that like, you know, who knows? I think the, the 2020 audience is more accepting. But back then, it, was, it would have been rather novel to have The Dark Knight, let's say, come out in 2008 and do all the amazing things that that did. Remember, when The Dark Knight came out, it was a huge zeitgeist moment. And Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker, and he won an Oscar. I mean, you know, it was the, the high point for comic book movie adaptations up to that point. And then a year later you'd have Justice League Mortal come out with a totally different Batman and a story that has nothing to do with that. And then a couple years later, The Dark Knight Rises comes out. So you would essentially kind of have two branching paths. You would have, you would have had audiences kind of have to get used to this fact that they're just dueling versions of these characters. Yeah, this is something, it's so, it's so funny, right? Because we're preparing to have that idea introduced to us in the years to come when, when the Flash movie comes out and everyone's so crazy about the multiverse now. But 11 years ago, that would have been a really big sort of deal. It, it might have alienated fans. It, it might have gone up in smoke. Who knows? But what would have been interesting was you would have had, you know, assuming that it came out and it did well, right? You would have the Dark Knight trilogy doing well on its own. You would have the Justice League Mortal movie doing well on its own. And then when Dark Knight Rises came out and ended that trilogy, you know, now you have this option to do more Justice League Mortal movies, you know, spinoffs of that, 
you know, or sequels of that story or solo movies on each of those versions of the characters. So we would have gotten a DJ Katrona Superman movie, for example. Um, you know, it would have completely altered the cinematic landscape as we know it. And who knows, maybe they would have gone straight into the Man of Steel reboot. But then again, if after Dark Knight Rises came out, they already had a Justice League sequel coming or perhaps a spinoff based on Superman. You know, imagine it had gone well in 09 when it came out or 2010, whenever it was that it was scheduled to come out. You know, they might not have made Man of Steel. They might not have felt the need to. You know, one way to look at Man of Steel also was like they knew that the Dark Knight trilogy was coming to a close, but that Christopher Nolan, the goose who lays the golden eggs, they wanted to try to find a way to keep him, you know, cranking out these awesome comic book movies. So they got, you know, he's he godfathered Man of Steel. Because they felt like, well, you know, we, we need to keep making superhero movies with Christopher Nolan because he's the best thing we got going. But that might not have been true if George Miller's Justice League Mortal came out and suddenly that's what we were shifting towards after the Nolan trilogy. Instead of just going into the great unknown. You know, because I think that's one of the things that happened too. When The Dark Knight Rises was on the horizon... And the studio realized, remember, this is now in 2012, and the MCU has been around since 2008, so we're four years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and if you're Warner Brothers, you're going, uh-oh, superheroes have never been hotter, and our hot superhero is hanging him up. Christopher Nolan is making Batman retire. He's ending this, you know, Batman, so we better get another one out there. So, okay, we're going to have him make a Superman movie. That's going to do it. That's going to do everything we need. But again, they might not have thought along those lines. They might not have felt the need to fill the superhero void if Justice League Mortal had come out and it had a modicum of success. So, Stephen, I think it would completely change the cinematic landscape as we know it because it would remove the urgency with which they had to create Man of Steel. And... It might have also opened us up to this idea of the multiverse much sooner. Because instead, what happened? Instead, we got some crazy interconnected DC films, which ended up being something that they had buyer's remorse about. You know, after doing everything they could, post Man of Steel, they set up a slate of movies that were all interlocked. From BVS to, you know, to Suicide Squad, to Wonder Woman, to Justice League, which was going to lead into The Flash, which was going to lead into Aquaman, which was going to lead into Cyborg, which was going to lead into Justice League 2, which was going to lead into The Batman, which was going to lead into Justice League 3. Are you getting dizzy? But literally all those movies were going to be coming out centered around the same five characters with all of these event movies mixed in the middle of them. You know, the, they went from, you know, not having a unified, shared sort of universe concept to suddenly having all of their eggs literally in one basket, the way Marvel did. And they ultimately decided after you know, during 2016 that maybe it's not a good idea to have these movies so interconnected because if audiences don't like one of them, they might sour on the rest of them. So, you know, they wouldn't have had to learn that hard lesson 
if they were basically doing the multiverse idea back in 2009, 2010 with Justice League Mortal. You know, they, they, that whole having everything be too crazy stacked on top of one another, um, they might have avoided that entirely if they were still looking at it like we can just have independent DC superhero franchises that don't really have to cross over, you know? So that, that, that is my very long-winded response to your question, Stephen. Um, now, Mr. John Folk sent in a question. John Folk asked, I know that DC has some great stuff coming up. What Marvel movie or TV show that has been announced has you the most excited? Well, John, I'm going to go with the TV option. Of the, all of the different TV shows that have been put out there, the one that's really on my mind is Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And the reason is going to be a little funny. This might sound a little uh, random, but I feel like that series has the potential to cover the same type of ground that I would want covered in a Superman movie. What? <laughs> no, but I mean it. Because this is going to take place after Avengers Endgame, right? And Falcon has been given the shield, and he's been offered the mantle of becoming the next, the new Captain America. And what I find interesting about that is... There's great potential in that. If one of the storyline elements, if one of the parts of his arc that we're going to be exploring throughout the series is what it means to be Captain America and what type of America he wants to be the captain for. Does he want to be like Steve? Does he want to be a symbol of good old fashioned values or does he want to confront today's America and try to show them the way they, you know, show them where they've been led astray. You know, it's a very sort of fascinating concept trying to figure out where Captain America, where someone who feels that way fits into our society, into our modern society, into this modern version of American culture. Where would a Captain America even fit with things being as divided and as polarized as they are? What would it mean to suddenly be bestowed with the mantle Captain America in today's world, in today's United States? So I feel like there's a lot of interesting storytelling ground. And I think that the fact that they call it the Falcon is, because you, know, you notice they don't call it Captain America and Winter Soldier. They call it the Falcon and Winter Soldier. I have a feeling this is going to be a series about his journey to accepting the responsibility of becoming Captain America. I feel like at some point during the series, either at the very end or somewhere in the middle, he's going to make the switch and finally become a Captain America for a whole new generation. But I think a lot of the fun and a lot of what's going to be interesting to watch what the, what the writers do and what the actors do and what the directors do with this material it's going to be interesting to see what type of journey he's, you know, he, he goes on to find out the type of Captain America he wants to be. Because that's no easy sort of thing to figure out in today's world, is it? So, listen, they might just go for fluff and just make it an action movie. 
But Sebastian Stan has already mentioned that this series has a lot more in common tonally with Captain America Winter Soldier than anything. And we know Winter Soldier was pretty hard-hitting, and it had some interesting thoughts in there about Big Brother and drone strikes and, you know, what is protection and what is just attacking people because you decided they're the enemy. You know, Winter Soldier had a lot of interesting, you know, things to sort of say geopolitically about what was going on in the world at the time. And I know some have said it happened by accident or it was, you know, all, you know, they weren't trying to make a smart political thriller. They just happened to. Some people feel that way because I think the Russo brothers once said that, like, it was almost coincidental. Or maybe it was Marcus and McFeely who said, you know, those are the writers who said that they weren't necessarily trying to draw very direct parallels to what was happening in real life. But honestly, it's very hard to miss you know, if you're someone who pays attention to the news and you pay and you pay attention to the way America is viewed around the world and to some of the very um, awful controversies we've been a part of, uh, Winter Soldier definitely has an opinion. It definitely sort of takes a stand on what is actually heroism and what is imperialism. So I'm just curious if any of that sort of heady thought process is going to go into the Falcon and Winter Soldier. And another reason that I think it could is that Sebastian Stan in other interviews has said some interesting stuff that makes it sound like, you know what, this is going to be a little deep, you know, because he says that like the way his Bucky and Steve know each other, that that's why Steve didn't give him the shield. He gave Falcon the shield because he knows Falcon still has a lot, you know, that he wants to prove and he has a desire to go out there and right these wrongs. While Bucky is still scarred from his wartime experience, just like Steve was. And while Steve was able to go back in time and give himself a, a, a regular life after all the sacrifices he made for the world, Steve was able to give himself that. And what Sebastian Stan said is that it's his belief that Steve wants Bucky to have that life too. He wants Bucky, who's still a young man at the end of Endgame because of what happened. Yeah, the way he was, uh, I guess, frozen and all that other sort of stuff. You know, he his hope is for Bucky to now go and live his life and enjoy his life the way he, Steve, did. So it's an interesting idea. And it shows that they're not just going for like, you know, silly, fizzy entertainment. If we're dealing with a Bucky Barnes who's dealing with the post-traumatic stress of being a soldier and all of the horrible things that he had to do as basically a weapon for the bad guys, who's now trying to find his place in the world and make peace with the horrible things he's done and deal with the scars that come from being a soldier and being in war and having to do things and take orders that perhaps you're not in lockstep with. You know, Stan mentioned that stuff. So that tells me that maybe the scripts for Falcon and Winter Soldier are going to have a little bit of heft to them. So if there is any sort of aspect of the Falcon and Winter Soldier that is essentially 
Falcon's journey to becoming Captain America and figuring out what, you know, who Captain America is, what kind of a Captain America he needs to be to unify and save our country. I think that could be a very interesting story. And that's why I say it could also be like the Superman series I want to see. You know, I was talking about that last week or the week before about how fascinating it would be for a Superman who has more old fashioned ideals because of his upbringing, trying to find his place in today's world. You know, I think that sort of concept is very ripe for very interesting storytelling twists and turns. And honestly, a show about the budding Captain America uh, is another area where you could explore that very same territory. And that very much intrigues me. And now I'm going to leave you with how the BVS screening went here in Casa Robles for last Friday's movie night. Um, it didn't go well. Uh, I mean, okay. It went, it, it, it went a couple of ways. It's a complicated sort of answer. Because while Man of Steel was a rousing success, and by and large, a lot of the movies that we watch on our Friday night movie nights tend to be, you know, four thumbs up across the board from my wife to my two kids to myself. Because, um, listen, I very carefully curate the stuff we watch. And, you know, I, I tend to know what's going to make my family happy. Uh, BVS, it was not thumbs up across the board. You know, my wife... Didn't really dig it much at all. Uh, my daughter, when I asked her, she gave a very sort of diplomatic answer. She was like, well, it's very serious, but it was it was good. My son, you know, I, 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 I was going to tell you because I've, I've been living with the guilt of this for about a week. But um, I forgot kind of how violent and dark the that movie is. Um, and my wife almost made us take it off early because there was so many, there's so much blood and gunshots and, and curse words and stuff like that. They're like I had totally forgotten about. So by the way, so I, I kind of felt like, you know, I, I, I might've made a mistake pushing us to see this movie when I'd forgotten that the ultimate cut is rated R and uh, not necessarily a kid's movie. But again, I was riding the high of Man of Steel. You know, I had such a great experience with that that I'm like, eh, it's not that much worse than Man of Steel. I guess I'd forgotten because there were several times where like we had to cover the kid's eyes. We had to mute the sound. We had to do little things throughout. And at some point, I think we almost pulled the plug. But, you know, my son sat there quietly and very seriously. He's six years old. And, you know, BVS is a very sort of dense sort of poetic movie. And it takes a long time for, like, the big title fight to happen. And it takes a long time for Doomsday to show up. Like, it's literally two hours of setup. So he was very sort of serious throughout. And... My wife kept shooting me dirty looks for how sort of violent and dark the movie was. And here's the thing that I've been carrying with me for a week. Um, so Superman dies, right? And I knew that. 
And you know that. But my son, which I didn't think about, because I'm just thinking about it like it's a movie, and he understands these are movies and that there's going to be a sequel or, you know. Superman died. And he got extra still and extra serious. And, but he was quiet. And there's still like 20 minutes of movie after Superman dies. You know, there's all the, the very long funeral scenes. There's the one in DC. There's the one in Smallville. There's, you know, Bruce and Diana talking about putting together the Justice League. You know, there's a fair amount of movie after the death. And it's like 11 o'clock. And my son looks very kind of serious and sort of like, I know I, I couldn't really make heads or tails of how he was feeling. I kind of thought maybe he's just tired. You know, it's a three hour movie. It's 11 o'clock. He's been up since seven o'clock. He had school today. Maybe he's tired. The 20 minutes goes by. And then the credits end. And my son suddenly buries his face in the couch cushions and starts crying uncontrollably. And I'm like, well, what is it, Seb? What's the matter, buddy? What, what happened? And he turns to me and he asks me, why did Superman have to die? And I was, um, I wasn't ready for that. Because he, you know, in his innocent mind and heart, he just watched Superman die and like brutally and tragically and sadly and the entire world's crying about it. And my son's six-year-old psyche took all that in and it crushed him. He was sobbing for like 10 minutes. I had to like hold him. He was sobbing into my shoulder. Asking me, why did Superman have to die, Daddy? <laughs> and I had to explain to him, like, it's, it's just a story, son. And look, and I, I got out the comic. And I'm like, see, he dies in the comics. And then he returns. You know, this, it's just part of the story. And there's going to be another one. And I showed him the trailer for Justice League. So to try to, like, end the night on a positive note. But he was just so sad. And I realized, like... That movie's hard. If you're a little baby Superman fan, it's a harsh movie because, you know, let's face it, the, the, the story is hard to follow if you're six. So what you really go by is the, the imagery or the visuals. And throughout BVS, Superman, you know, he's kind of painted out to look like the villain. You know, he rarely smiles. You understand fully why Bruce Wayne hates him. Sebastian was very affected by the girl pointing at the building saying that her mom died in the beginning. And, you know, in, in the nightmare sequence, you're watching Superman incinerate people who are tied up, you know, and, and, and if you're, you know, it's a lot to digest. If you're a little six year old baby boy who loves Superman, it's a lot. And I made him sit through three hours of Superman being painted in a not amazing way and then dying tragically and violently. <laughs> so uh, dad of the year goes to me, apparently. Um, but, you know, the good news is, um, you know, his love of Superman is very much real. 
And that night, the way we got him to sort of calm down after showing him the comic books and explaining to him and showing him the trailer for Justice League and explaining that, you know, Superman comes back and this is just part of the story. He's not really dead. Did you see how the dirt was floating off of the coffin at the end? I mean, it's a weird thing to have to explain to a six-year-old, by the way. Look at the coffin and the dirt. That's your hero. You know, it was it was just, um, in hindsight, maybe we shouldn't have done BVS um, just yet. You know, I was just inspired. The house was in a Superman mood and Man of Steel was such a triumph here in the house that I was really excited to, like, give them more time with that Superman. But unfortunately, it's it's in a movie that if you love Superman, um, it, it it's a tough watch. And it's this weird parallel because I've told a story over the years of when I was four. I saw Superman 4, and when Nuclear Man is pounding Superman into the dirt, um, I associated that with death. Even at the age 4, I understood that burial means death. So when Nuclear Man pounds Christopher Reeve down into the moon, into the dirt, I turned to my mom with real tears, really crying, Superman's dead, I said. And, it, you know, and my mom had to like hold me and there was people in the movie theater looking back. It was like a little bit of a scene at the Elmwood Theater in Elmhurst, Queens. But I remember what it felt like to watch my hero die. That's what I thought happened to him. Remember, Nuclear Man also, he, there was that earlier scene where he slashed him with the radioactive claws and Superman, like, got all old and weird and sick. Like, I'd already seen this Nuclear Man basically hurt and really injure, you know, like, severely damage my Superman. And now he's burying him in the moon. So it, it felt very real to me. And then thankfully, I only had to wait about three minutes and then Superman, you know, showed back up again. My son didn't get that. My son watched Superman get a claw through his chest and then get eulogized and buried in two different places. And then the credits rolled. And he was left with that. Um, it was hard. It was harsh. It was harsh. Um, as for how I felt watching BVS for what I think amounts to like the fourth or fifth time now. Um, I mean, look, it's still my least favorite uh, Superman related movie. And it's still where I diverge from Zack Snyder and his vision. You know, Man of Steel made me a believer last week. And in general, Man of Steel, you know, there was enough there to make me want to see more movies with that character. But BVS is where I just totally said, this isn't for me. And for those of you who like it, that's great. I support you liking it. I'm happy you like it. But... Like, I understand everything he was going for. I understand the poetic symbolism of his visuals. I understand the type of hard-hitting story he was trying to tell. 
But I got to tell you, I just did not like BVS. You know, it, it's, I can get behind it as a, uh, you know, I'm kind of speechless here because I'm still reeling from how things went last week. And it's kind of just a reminder for me of, I hate to say this, but I'm going to. What I loved about Man of Steel, the vast majority of what I loved about Man of Steel was that script. And that was a script that was carefully put together by Nolan and Goyer. And Man of Steel, you know, and, and Zack Snyder, his end of the bargain was to bring that script to life. But the few areas where he got to flex his creative muscle were in the action sequences. And to me, it's the action sequences that sort of betray the movie. And, you know, and even, after, even with last week's positive viewing of Man of Steel, you know, I still have issues with the way that the third act was handled. And again, that's all Snyder's call because that's not written in the script. You know, the, the script just says there's a fight in Metropolis or whatever. Snyder's the one who decides how many freaking buildings have to come down and how many spaceships have to knock down nine skyscrapers. And, you know, like, that, that was all Snyder's call to make the destruction quite to that level. And then in BVS, you had no Nolan. And in BVS, you really got a vision that was Snyder's vision, that he worked with Chris Terrio, that Ben Affleck brought Chris Terrio from Argo, and they came up with this whole thing together. So basically, once these movies became primarily Snyder's vision, I kind of checked out. Uh, when Man of Steel, remember Man of Steel, that, you know, he was a hired gun. He confirmed that in a recent interview. I mean, it's not like, shocking we all knew that you know there was a superman movie in play before snyder was attached to it nolan basing you know, nolan hired him so snyder was a hired gun on man of steel basically doing his best to do that script justice and then flex his own creative muscles where he could but after man of steel it really becomes a snyder joint and that's where i kind of take a step back um, and BVS really kind of reminded me of that, reminded me of why I felt this need to like distance myself for the first time ever. I just kind of wanted to distance myself from Superman and DC on film, you know, and then following that up with Suicide Squad, another movie that got mangled in post and was really kind of an uneven, weird, unsatisfactory experience. And, um... Yeah, 2016 was a pretty tough time. <laughs> but um, yeah, so to, 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 to answer anyone's questions about Batman versus Superman, the ultimate edition, the reception was mixed. It broke my son's heart. And to me, it's still a movie that shouldn't have happened when it happened or the way that it happened. Um, but that's, 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 that's what happened last week. And I got to tell you, the number of times that my wife looked across at me to go, how are you, you know, how did you okay this movie with the amount of adult subject matter um, 
that's going to haunt me. I'm definitely going to be a lot more careful. <laughs> no more impulsive uh, decisions for what movies are going to happen on movie night, you know, because BVS was a, that, that was a tough pill to swallow. But um, hopefully this isn't a tough pill to swallow. That's my time for this week. So thank you for enjoying the show. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. The show is officially on Spotify now. Our YouTube presence is starting to grow quite a bit. I'm starting to do a thing where I break the episodes down into smaller, more manageable chunks. For those of you who just want to watch me talk about a specific topic, you'll have the option to do that on our YouTube channel if you go visit. And um, if you haven't yet, please consider going to Apple Podcasts and leaving me a five-star review so that we can continue to spread the good word and build the buzz because the Fanboy Podcast is back. It feels amazing to be back. And there's so much going on out there in the, in, in the realm of pop culture that I'm going to have a lot to say for a while. So thanks to everyone who's enjoyed these first five episodes back from my hiatus. It, it feels pretty damn great. So until next week... Life is chaos. Be kind. Adios.